Blood Bond by Nick Bastin. Copyright 2019, Nick Bastin. Chapter 41, Rannoch Moor. As the cat made its way down the trough of the glen, sandwiched between the high hills on either side and the meandering Orkey in the middle, Gillespie turned his thoughts to the next leg of their journey. Of course, he'd heard of Rannoch Moor. It was infamous in Gallic circles as the debatable land that lay in the centre of the highlands between the spheres of influence of the eastern and western magnates. This was where the writ of Macallan Moor petered out, and before that of Athol or Gordon started. It was legendary as an inhospitable bog, open and weather-lashed, with no farmland and few houses. It had little of value if you didn't count freedom, the freedom to do whatever you pleased, as long as you had the strength to do it. Since time immemorial, and certainly since long before the Republic, so-called broken men, those that had been expelled from their clans, would come to hide out among like-minded rogues. This too was where most of the Grigorach had settled. The McGregor clan, or the Grigorach as they were known, had long been feared by their neighbours. The media was always full of tales of luxury cars being stowed into order and shipped to their clients in the Balkans or South America, or the doings of their mercenary units in far-flung parts of Africa. Any unclaimed act of wickedness was generally laid at their door, whether they had anything to do with it or not. While Gillespie was sure that the stories contained more than a grain of truth, he was also sure they were amplified to sell newspapers and supermarket novels and scare children into good behaviour. But that hadn't stopped the McGregors from being excluded and shunned by much of Gallic society. Over many centuries they had been expelled from most of their ancestral lands or forced to join other clans. But Rannoch Moor was their last redoubt, and few risked entering there lightly. This den of iniquity was what they had to cross to have even a chance of reaching Kindrocket and the relative safety of Charlie's family. Shadowing the course of the Orkey River, they bounced and wound their way down the glen to its natural conclusion. Here it was dissected by the other major wade that ran northeast from the Araka border crossing and plugged by the mighty pyramid of Ben Doran, whose bulky lower slopes lay ahead of them. Nin shouted details of their route to Gillespie over the roar of the engine. We're going to go left at the wade, at which he sped out of the window, and follow the bottom of the hill round. We don't want to get drawn across the middle of the moor if we can avoid it. Instead, we're going to skirt the southern corner. We need to hug the side of Ben Doran as it pushes the road north to Loch Tulla. And then we'll come off the road and follow the water of Tulla all the way to the Bridge of Gower, where we'll cross the Tummel. It's too dangerous to cross any further east until you're pretty much over the border. Gower is where the danger really lies, as any self-respecting Grigorach will have their keen eyes on that crossing point. Not that I imagine they get many passing strangers, all things considered. There's an inn there where we can probably get something to eat and somewhere to rest, but it won't be luxurious. We'll need to get there without arousing too much attention. On the other side of the tunnel is a minor wade that will take us to Pitlochry. From there we should be safe to travel the rest of the way by wade to Kindrocket. Gillespie nodded. It made no odds to him. He was just being swept along wherever the grinding wheels took him. Having negotiated the wade without incident, Nin stopped at a suitably discreet spot to open the thermos have a smoke and swap places with Charlie, who was already feeling the effect of the cold. The next stage of the journey was risky, they all knew that, but there was no alternative. 
Charlie puffed at the roll-up while carefully studying the bleak, open bog ahead of them, as if half expecting a ragged bunch of McGregors to appear at any moment. Darkness was falling, and although there was a rough track that followed the tuller, it was, it was slow going, full of muddy hollows filled with freezing water. Gillespie lost count of the times that he and Nin had to get out and help push the cat out of a deep piece of bog or up a steep bank. Each time he got out of the relative warmth of the cat to help push, his heart sank. The surface of the moor was soon crisp with frost, and the pools and puddles that made up most of its surface had a thin covering of cat ice that made the inevitable plunge into the freezing water below even more chilling. His legs were frozen, and although the kilt kept his core surprisingly warm, it was still wet and deeply unpleasant. He had lost the feeling in his fingers, which he stuffed under his armpits while he attempted to keep blood moving in his toes by wriggling them relentlessly. Eventually, the track improved somewhat, and they made their way through mile after mile of conifer plantation, following forestry tracks that wound their way through the dark impenetrable pines. Within the forestry, they were able to use their headlights more freely, without the worry they might attract unwelcome eyes. Charlie discovered that Gillespie's phone still had sufficient signal to use the GPS system, and although there was the occasional wrong turn, mostly they were able to make reasonable progress. Finally, the plantation started to thin, and Charlie pulled over so they could survey what lay ahead. From the edge of the forestry, they had a good perspective out across the moor to the north and east. Charlie explained that the flattest and boggiest parts of the moor were to their northwest, and they had escaped the most impenetrable part. He pointed out the track as it wove its way down through dull brown open ground between the two hills that were the gateway to the head of Loch Rannoch and the Bridge of Gower. They could see the village line beyond, if you could call it a village, just a few houses scattered round the lockhead. Dawn was starting to lighten the sky, and Nin and Charlie shared the binoculars, sweeping the glen to check for any movement. Finally convinced that the coast was clear, they got back in the cat and set off. Nin at the wheel. Gillespie's kidneys took another hard pounding as they came down into the village. The ruts and bumps of the track were frozen solid, and the cat's tyres transferred the impact of every ridge and hole through his entire body. It started to sleet. The prospect of a warm room and a bed became almost unimaginably desirable to Gillespie. He wasn't sure if he'd ever been so cold for so long before. As he drove, Nin was concentrating hard to avoid the worst of the holes in the track. His nose and cheekbones were raw with cold. Tiny purple tendrils spread across the skin of his pale face as his body struggled to deliver heat and oxygen to its extremities. In the back, Charlie was stamping his feet to keep the blood flowing and swearing freely to himself. After 16 hours of these relentless, cold and wet conditions, they needed shelter, whatever the potential risks. They slowly made their way between dark and shuttered houses, coming at last to a rather surprising Scandinavian-style wood-clad building. It had a rough, hand-painted sign swinging in the wind, announcing it as the Inn at Gower. For all the clean modern lines of the building, the silver-grey of the wood panels, streaked darker by the rain and sleet, only accentuated the gloomy feel of the hamlet. The antithesis of vibrant, it felt abandoned, as if all the energy had been sucked down into the bog. Nin was uncharacteristically reticent about ringing the bell. It was still early, barely 8am, and they had little way of knowing if the innkeep was awake yet. But the biting cold brooked no hesitation, and having discreetly parked the cat, Nin pressed the entry buzzer robustly. A small camera above their head suddenly turned and stared in their direction. Then there was a clumping of feet and a rather tunis whistle before the door opened and they fell inwards into the warm and dry. Chapter 42. The Inn at Gower. As they settled in the bar, gratefully sipping tea and whiskey, 
Gillespie looked around the room. It was rather an unfortunate collision of low-key Scandinavian minimalist architecture and pure English pub vernacular. Horse brasses, swirly red carpet, flancy light shades, well-used dartboard and a large flat-screen TV. In this extremely remote and dangerous location, this seemed beyond incongruous. He began to wonder if it was real or just a hallucination. Having introduced himself as John Smith, the innkeep said to them in a broad Lancashire accent, Right, now that you're all settled, would you mind telling me who you are and what you're doing here? It's not every day that I get woken up by a bunch of half-frozen girls at 8am of the morning. Actually, it happens more often than you might think, but it's still not an everyday occurrence. Nin and Charlie exchanged a quick glance before Charlie replied, I stay over by Kendrocket, and we're on our way home. There was a spot of bother on the way, and we were keen to avoid the main road, if you get my meaning. Yes, I'm sure I do. You don't need to tell me any more. In these parts, we understand the value of discretion. John Smith stifled a yawn with the back of one of his ham-like hands. If you don't mind me asking, interrupted Nin, clearly unable to restrain himself any longer, how on earth did an Englishman end up running the inn at Goa? You don't look like the type to be a natural bedfellow of the Grigorach and their friends. For a start, you're a Sassanach, and there can't be too many of them here in Rannoch. Oh, I don't know, John Smith replied. You'd be surprised. Then, leaning in as if to let them in on a secret, he said in his most conspiratorial whisper, Maybe it's because I'm a Sassanach that they're happy for me to be here. After all, we weren't the bastards that put a price on their heads and chased them down with hunting dogs now, were we? And I'm sure that it was a Scottish king that prescribed the MacGregor name for 150 years on pain of death or banishment. And I'm pretty sure that we weren't the ones that took away all their land and sold them into indentured slavery in the colonies. Nope, that wasn't us. So us Sassanachs actually get along just fine with the Grigorach. It's you bastards that need to watch yourselves. In which he roared with laughter and clapped Nin and Charlie on the back, spilling their tea and enlisting an exchange of sheepish grins between them. John Smith was a short but portly man, his belly stretched before him like a prow, reflecting its owner's love of food and beer. His wispy hair was starting to go thin and grey on top, and as if to compensate, it was being allowed to hang in a sweep at the back. His red-cheeked face was jovial and framed two dark brown eyes that peered out behind a pair of glasses as if through grubby neck curtains. His bulbous nose was a livid purple, swollen and pitted, a living record of a licentious life. His glorious laugh, which filled the room, revealed teeth that had not troubled any dentist for some years. Anyway, I almost forgot to ask what clan you are, said John, eyeing them carefully. These things matter around here, as you might imagine. So let me see now. He adjusted the glasses that hung round his neck on a lanyard to inspect the tartan more closely. Campbell's, hmm, that may be problematic. Not the most popular clan here on the moor, I must say. Nin and Charlie looked at each other aghast before realising they were still wearing the jackets that they had captured from the Campbells by the fine. They immediately stripped off that layer to reveal the tartan that lay beneath, self-consciously holding up the panels to ease John Smith's identification. Ah, so it's two McNachtons and a Farkerson now, is it? That should be okay. I don't think there's too much bad blood out there that I'm aware of, at least not in the last few centuries, at which he laughed his belly laugh again, clumping them each on the shoulder for good measure. Well, I can see why you don't want to go around by the main road. Impersonating another clan is a serious matter. As a Sassanach, I don't think I know what your canon has to say about that, but I'm sure it wouldn't be comfortable or pleasant. Now, I don't really mind what it is that you've done, as long as you keep your blades sheathed and your bill paid. 
but there are those around here that might get a little overexcited if they saw some Campbell tartan. So I'd be cautious about flaunting that too widely. Now, can I get you something to eat to go with that fine cup of tea? The ravenous response that his question elicited produced another deep rolling laugh. Having taken their prodigious order, he disappeared off to the kitchen. Soon they had demolished everything that John had to offer them, and they were asking about renting some rooms for a bit of rest. Charlie was for getting back on the road by midday to have some hope of reaching Kendrocket by nightfall. Nin and Gillespie were in no mood to disagree. After two nights on the hill, sleeping in a bed for a full eight hours that night was suddenly a very attractive proposition. John showed them up the stairs to the rooms, raising an eyebrow at Nin and Charlie as they settled in together, but saying nothing. The rooms were spartan but warm, and Gillespie's eyes barely had time to take it all in before he fell asleep, fully dressed. Gillespie felt as though his eyes had barely closed when a rough hand started shaking him to get up. He bitterly resented it and tried to snuggle back under the duvet. He imagined himself back home in his drafty bedroom in Antrim, where the act of rising was always carefully premeditated to require the shortest possible time between bed and clothes. But the shaking was persistent and eventually could be ignored no longer. With a final, what the fuck, you bastard, he lifted his head off the bed and found himself staring down the deep, fullered blade of a claymore. The other end of the sword, his face somewhat obscured by its basket, was a skinny, shaven-headed man with a long, single topknot that was braided in a plait and which hung round his face. Easy now, tiger. No sudden moves, the stranger said, keeping the blade very still and pointed at Gillespie's left eye. With his free hand, he pulled the duvet slowly off Gillespie to check that he had no weapons hidden under the covers. Okay, now I want you to put your hands on your head and stand up very slowly. If I see the merest flinch, I will cut you a new smile from ear to ear. Raise your right index finger if you understand. Gillespie raised his finger and slowly swung his legs over the edge of the bed and stood up. In the limited space, it was hard for him to pass the man without getting very close. His hard, pale eyes bored into Gillespie, as if daring him to try and make a move. But Gillespie was not about to do anything foolish and meekly passed him, going out into the corridor. The man scooped up Gillespie's two-hander, giving an admiring glance as he did so, and prodded Gillespie ahead of him down the stairs and back through the door to the bar. Charlie and Nin were already there. Both had been bound with cable ties and sat glumly looking at Gillespie. At least it didn't look as though they'd been harmed yet. The bar was now filled with a ragtag bunch of cutthroats and desperados of all shapes and sizes. Tall, short, fat, thin, both men and women. The only characteristic that they shared was a haggard confidence. They were joking and laughing while they drank their coffee and beer, casting the occasional glance over at the captives but not really paying them much mind. Assorted weapons, both traditional and modern, were scattered on tables and propped against chairs. Over by the dartboard, a group were throwing knives at appointed numbers and betting on the outcome of each throw with much ribald laughter. The skinny man with a shaved head put his sword point down and told Gillespie to hold his wrists forward. He then bound them together with a cable tie, firmly but not too tightly, and sat him down next to Nin and Charlie. They carefully looked him over, as if to check that he still had all his arms and legs. John Smith was leaning on the bar talking to one of the Catarans, a wild-looking Indian man with thick matted hair tied up in a ragged bun, a bristling moustache and red-rimmed black eyes which burned like coals. John Smith and he were sharing a rather intense joke, and John's easy laugh reverberated around the room at the punchline. Gillespie noticed that the Indian man carried no tartan. As he looked round the room, many of the others didn't either. 
Those that did mostly carried the nine green squares on a red ground with a white stripe that was immediately identifiable as McGregor. Gillespie's mouth went dry. These were the Grigorach, the most feared and loathed collection of thieves and murderers in all of the Republic, or the Kingdom for that matter. Once his shock had subsided, he nudged Nin. What's going to happen? What will they do with us? Nin shrugged. Depends on their mood. If we're lucky, they might just let us go. If we're unlucky, they might hold us hostage for ransom or rape us each in turn before cutting our throats. Whatever you do, don't say any more than you need to. At that moment, a slight man of medium height came towards them. Gillespie had never seen anyone so striking. He was handsome with an almost beatific cast to his clean-shaven face. His short and neat hair was carefully brushed and very dark, as were his thick, neatly trimmed eyebrows and long eyelashes, and his contrast with his pale skin and limpid blue eyes. His face had an extraordinary indistinct and vaporous quality, as if his features moved in smoke and shadow. His face was one that you struggled to remember clearly unless you held it in your gaze. If Gillespie looked away, even for a moment, then it immediately dissolved in his mind's eye despite his best efforts. The Grigorath's manner was surprisingly poised, and his delicate hands were well manicured. He had no bulging biceps to flaunt, but his spare physique had the latent energy of a coiled spring. Gillespie found it far more intimidating. Unlike the ragged and dirty clothes that most of his companions wore, his were largely clean and well-pressed, each pleat of his kilt hanging sharp. In a rough and godforsaken place like Rannoch, this evoked its own power. Gillespie was not surprised to see that his right arm carried the nine green squares on red that identified him as a McGregor and not just a random broken man. The Grigorach was joined by the man with the braided plait and, th- and a thick-set black woman who was older than the others and had a battle-hardened calmness about her. They pulled up some chairs and sat looking at their captives. The dark-haired man who had the bearing of their leader drew his ski and do, which he waggled at them as he leant forward. What do we have here, I wonder? John over there which he gestured with his skin do at John Smith by the bar, tells me that you arrived first thing this morning, dressed in Campbell's Harton. But you shed that skin soon enough, and now profess to be McNuchtons, and a Farkson of all things. McNuchtons are usually as rare as unicorns in Rannoch, aren't they, Sal? He asked the woman, who nodded. And now we have two, all at the same time. Very unusual, I'd say. And as for the Farkson, well... I don't suppose you're related to Gary Farkson, are you, by any chance? At which he put the blade in Charlie's face, checking for any reaction. No? Oh. Well, that's a shame, because if you were, I'd have to cut your cock off and shove it so far down your throat you'd piss blood out of your ass. At this vicious change of tone, he studied their faces closely, before returning his attention to shaving the cuticles of his nails with the dagger's point. So, tell me, Sal, how do we know these here gentlemen are telling us the truth? that they aren't Campbells in disguise, or Murrays, for that matter, sent to hunt us down. The skinny man with the plait said, Maybe we should carve us off a slice. If it tastes of bacon, then we'll know we've caught us some Campbells. Now it was his turn to hold a dagger to Charlie's face, which went an even whiter shade of pale than usual. Honestly, listen to the pair of you, said Sal. You'll have them believing all the Rannock stories soon. Here, give me that. She grabbed the man with the plait's knife and approached Ninian, who tried to back away from the advancing blade. She traced the point slowly down his Adam's apple, leaving the finest red line in its wake, before laughing at his widened eyes and slicing off one and then another button off his tunic. 
Reaching down, she then pulled the fabric off his right shoulder, revealing the indigo silhouette of the Black Tower tattoo. A similar operation was performed on Charlie, revealing his sword-bearing line, and finally on Gillespie, who aroused some consternation due to his bare, milky-white shoulder. How can you be a McNachton if you don't carry the mark of the Black Tower? Sal asked incredulously. Believe me, it's complicated, Gillespie said. Before he could add anything further, Nin jumped in. Although he's clan, he's really from across the water in Northern Ireland. We kidnapped him from his home in Antrim and brought him to Dundarav, under the orders of our last chief. It was a clan thing. You know how it is sometimes. Aye, as a matter of fact I do, replied the dark-haired man. All those chiefs sending you on their silly errands hither and yon, and you clannish sheep meekly doing their bidding without a brain cell or bollock between you. That rubbish won't wash here. We are the Grigorach, and we don't hold with chiefs. We choose the freedom to do as we please. Anyway, we've had a long day and a longer night. I don't have the time, energy or inclination to deal with you. But you would do well to remind your own business and keep out of our way. Where are you headed next? I think it only fair to warn you that we're just back from a little altercation over the border in Dunkeld, so it may be a little hot if you're going east. Without waiting for a reply, the man checked his watch, and seeing it was coming up to midday, shouted to John Smith, Turn on the TV! I want to check the news. As John switched on the large TV, the attention of the room focused on the screen in the corner. And eventually found the BBC News Channel, John turned up the sounds so they could hear the concerned-looking newsreader's voice. Another dark day for relations between the Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and the Gallic Republic, as a group of unidentified clansmen terrified the sleepy border town of Dunkeld earlier this morning. Just as residents were waking up to start their day, a Gallic war band, which is believed to be led by none other than the infamous Alistair MacGregor, swept through the town, making for the border. This followed a daring raid carried out the previous night on King's Brand Pharmaceuticals in Dundee, where security staff and production managers were bound and gagged while the gales ransacked the facility. It is believed they were searching for specific high-value medications, including hydromorphone hydrochloride, a painkiller that is literally worth its weight in gold. It is understood an undisclosed volume of the drug was stolen by the band, which then made for the border crossing. The camera now swept a heavily fortified border post with guards and police milling around looking earnest. This elicited a few jeers from the occupants of the room, many of whom made a ring with their index fingers and thumbs and waved their wrists at the screen before being hushed by their leader. The newsreader continued, Several prominent local residents were taken from their homes and used as human shields as the war band forced their way through the border crossing. We were relieved to be able to report that all were subsequently released unharmed and that no fatalities had been reported. This is the second major incident in recent weeks between the out-of-control Republic clan factions and Kingdom forces. A formal complaint has been issued by First Minister Balfour in the strongest possible terms to the Parliament of the Gallic Republic in Oban. In response, just a few minutes ago, the following statement was released. The real test of the Gallic Republic is shocked by the news of the appalling act and deplore in the strongest possible terms the actions of this renegade band. We would like to convey our deepest sympathies to those that have been affected and are committed to bringing these criminals to justice at the earliest opportunity. The real test can confirm that the Black Watchmen have been deployed and are on the trail of the perpetrators. Aye, aye, whatever, said Alistair MacGregor, while running his fingers through his neat dark hair, smoothing and shaping it. The bastards will need to find us first. Chapter 43 The Castle Breach had never been inside Inverary Castle before. 
Of course, she was familiar with its four towers, with their witch's hat roofs and brooding blackstone walls, but she'd never gone inside. Not many McNachtons had, at least not willingly. The seat of the Campbells for many, many hundreds of years, it had always stood as a challenge to McNachton tenure, a challenge which over the centuries had turned into a threat and then into the reality of expropriation. She looked out of the vehicle at the Dewar stone walls and shuddered. What would her ancestors make of her walking through that door with none other than McCallan Moore? McCallan Moore swung the 4x4 in a large arc, crunching over the sweep of gravel so that Breed's door was opposite the port cochere. A much betartened flunky rushed out with an umbrella to shelter her from the pouring rain as she took the few steps to the front door. McCallan Moore then ushered her into the main atrium, effusively welcoming her to his home. While Breach was no stranger to castles, having spent much of her life in and around Dundarav, even she had to admit that this was on a different and more opulent scale. The atrium was double-height, festooned with old clan weapons from King Charlie's time and before, and these had been artfully arranged in geometric patterns on the walls. Most noticeable to her was the relative warmth inside. Dundarav was many things, but warm it wasn't, even in the height of summer. Here, the warmth reflected the obvious wealth that surrounded her, but spoke more clearly than any Gobelin tapestry. McCallum Moore wove a path through several rooms and up a flight of stairs to a cosy book-lined sitting room, complete with an overstuffed Chesterfield sofa and a range of well-worn armchairs. Turfing out an indignant spaniel that was sitting in the most comfortable-looking chair, McCallum Moore invited her to sit while he summoned tea and his steward. Duncan Campbell arrived shortly after the tea and had to clear his throat several times with ever-increasing volume to catch the attention of McCallan Moore, who was busy pointing out interesting features of the view to Bridge. Will you be my guest here tonight? I'd feel terrible if you had to go back down the glen to an empty house after everything you've been through. Why not spend the night and have supper with me? I'm sure I can get the cook to rustle us up something edible. And in terms of bedrooms, as you might imagine, there's no shortage. Bridge thought about this carefully. Many of her fellow clan members would be aghast at the idea of her staying the night in Inverary Castle, let alone having dinner with their inveterate enemy. But over many years, she developed a sixth sense to know when men were attracted to her, and McCallan Moore, with all his twinkly-eyed chat and empathetic concern, was ringing all her alarm bells. Normally, she would run a mile or at least fired a shot across his bows, but against her natural instincts, and certainly against the collective prejudices of her ancestors and fellow clan, she paused. Having spoken with McCallum Moore at some length, it was now clear to her that he had not intended for the assault to end the way it had. He certainly had nothing to do with Alexander's death. He nonetheless held the clan and their future in his grip. Fortune had cast him in her path, and the incident in the infirmary had created a connection between them. She could feel his attraction, and that could prove a useful lever of influence, something that the clan needed now more than ever. But beyond altruism, she also had to admit that she was attracted to him, that wasn't a feeling she'd had for a long time. She'd grown up with her fellow clansmen all her life. They had no secrets to hide, the good and the bad, all was known. That dull security and predictability was what she'd always run away from. She suddenly felt like being a bit reckless, not overthinking this moment, and resolved to at least stay for supper, relinquishing herself to the flow of events. Dark had now fallen, and McCallan Moore drew the curtains and started to fuss over the fire. It was recalcitrant, refusing to light, with every wasted match, his frustration grew. Breach tutted and calmly pushed him aside. Crouching at the grate, she quickly reassembled the kindling into a little teepee with a twist of paper at its heart, and, having relieved him of the box of matches, struck one to light it. 
The flames caught first on the paper and then slowly licked up the split sections of kindling, growing in intensity. The yellow tongues soon chasing round the boar's head on the cast-iron fireback. Before long, the fire was roaring away and they both stood watching it, silently transfixed, transported. The spell wrought by the infinite pattern of the flames, which have ever hypnotised and captivated humans since those first sparks millennia ago, still held true and wove its magic around them. She couldn't remember if it was she who kissed him or he that kissed her first, but after that touch of his lips on hers, everything else fell away. The world shrank to that moment, that hot, wet kiss, the press of his tongue, the caress of his hands that traced up her back. He tasted sweet, like a distant memory of strawberries, but as she kissed his neck, he also smelt animalic, dark, dangerous and alluring. Her pulse raced as he cupped her left breast, squeezing her nipple through the fabric of her top, massaging her with his palm. She pushed him back on the sofa, sliding his kilt up and fondling his heavy balls between thumb and forefinger, causing his cock to jump and stiffen for her kiss. He slid a hand up between her legs, teasing an entry, his fingers questing and probing, her body pulsated. They consummated that moment with an urgent coupling, both caught in the bonds of the other's desire, succumbing to and embracing it as if it was the only thing left in the world that mattered. Blood Bond was written and recorded by Nick Bastin. The Reel of the Red Banner was written and performed by Ewan Henderson. This has been a Book of the Black Tower production. (laughs) 